0: Hi everybody! Thanks for tuning into the Home Matters podcast. I'm Randy Brock, alongside Ron and Lynn Whiteman. Hi, Ron. Hey, RB. How you doing? I'm good. Hi, Lynn.
1: <laughs> Hi. How are you? Today? I'm doing great. How are you? <laughs> I'm good.
0: Ron, uh, <laughs> Lynn was almost lunch today, by the way. We were we we're sitting here looking out the window. There was a bald eagle that came in and swooped and uh, got a little meal as you were walking into the building.
1: He did. He, no. he, she, it did. Who knows? Who knows? But I, was when I bald eagle. Yeah, when I went to take a picture um, for proof for you all, um, it left its lunch and took off. But it was there. It was real. It was very cool.
2: Steve Lang. Seems like you had been close enough to see whether it was a boy or a girl. You think I should have? <laughs> I'll have to examine the photo evidence later. <laughs>
0: there is no photo. <laughs>
1: Oh, shoot. So yeah. Steve's here. He's
2: with the Rochester Magazine. You, can we say you are Rochester Magazine? No, I'm definitely not. We have a phenomenal <laughs> team at Rochester Magazine. And I've been there for almost 20 years, but that's not just me. Right.
0: And Rochester Magazine is a part of?
2: We're actually now owned by Forum Communications, which owns about 39 newspaper and TV properties throughout Minnesota, mostly, and then North and South Dakota as well.
0: Yeah. A lot of circulation with Rochester Magazine, too. So whenever we have an ad in there, whenever there's a cool story, it's everywhere. It's in Mayo Clinic. It's all around the city and surrounding areas. So uh,
2: people really enjoy the the magazine. It's phenomenal, the amount of feedback we get. Sometimes I get a little too insulated and and don't pay as much attention to it. But when we do, it is amazing the amount of response we get from you know the smallest things in the magazine. I had someone tell me the other day how excited they were that they had a We have a little column called six words or less that we run every month. Just one question and you answer in six words or less. And they were so excited that their kids had seen it in there and some family members had commented and you're thinking, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah.
0: And I always appreciate that on Facebook too. When you guys post that to get the feedback, to find out. Sure. It's always a good line. Ron, we're going to talk a little real estate and we're going to get back to Steve here in a little bit. So uh, by the way, happy holidays. It is. Yeah. it's coming. And it's
3: my favorite time of year but not because it's be- new sweater season. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the Christmas sweater. No, and, and I, I like the holidays, but it's my favorite time of the year because it's really a time when I can dig in any of us that like numbers and enjoy numbers can dig into the numbers and, and look back and see what's happened this year. Because as we've all talked about before, real estate is a commodity. It'll be up one month and down the next. And, uh, so it was, I was anxious to kind of compare what 2019 look like as to compared to 2018 understanding we still have a few more houses that will close actually we got one closing in two hours today but these numbers are pretty surprising uh this this year to date In understanding i'm using rochester as just a gauge single-family homes in rochester i've always kind of used that because rochester is where all the energy stems from even though we sell and do business in most all of southeastern Minnesota. But in Rochester Proper Southeast, uh, Rochester Proper single-family homes, we have sold 1,765 homes. And that is just right on par with last year, which was 1,866. So the days on market are almost exactly the same, at 41 overall. And so our market is performing very, very well. The interesting thing when you look at what's happening is, and we've talked about this a bit in the past, is 65% of everything that we have sold is under, uh, in that 300 and under market. Right. But it still only accounts for less than 30% of the available inventory today. So that's where our shortage comes in, is because most of what we're selling is that 300 and under, and, uh, but our inventory is still really short on those numbers. We talk
0: about that a lot, actually, as far as uh, something I like to bring up, too, is that if you've got a house on the market that is 385000 or $560,000, that expectation for days on market has to be different than a house that goes on the market for $175,000 in our market today.
1: It really is two different markets because up up to about two, $250,000, these homes go quite quickly because mm-hmm. of the shortage of inventory. But it is a, a totally different story when yeah. you hit that 300 and go up. And it's not a bad
0: thing either, would you say? It just no, tends mm-hmm. to be kind of normal with how many buyers you have in that range.
1: It's only a bad thing when your expectations are off. Right. Because if you have a house at 350, 400, and the expectation is that it's going to sell in a day, then we have to talk about that.
0: Day two can be tough. <laughs> yeah. <Day two. laughs> <laughs>
3: That's
1: when we talk
0: about it. And we don't even want to go to day three.
3: <laughs> so the average overall this year uh, price uh, is $198, uh, i am sorry, 298 So 300000 is the average price of everything that we've sold. And that is only a 4% increase over uh, 2018. So it was, you know, the market hasn't gone crazy. It's not, not exploded. It's not caved in this year. It's actually very consistent to what we saw in, in 2018. And um, so well, that's pretty close to a cost of li- cost of living increase. Yeah, from it one really year to the next. It really is. Yeah. It really is. And then the interesting thing is, we're also at the not only at the end of a year, but we're also at the at the end of a decade. Decade. What was happening in our housing market in '09? Do you remember? You were there.
1: Uh, oh, I remember. Ah, yeah, that wasn't very fun. <laughs> 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 Talk about having conversations. <laughs>
3: You know, it was it was a different time because in '09 we were probably maybe seeing the end of the crisis. We didn't really come out of the crisis until the end of uh, 2010. Uh, but in '09 we closed 803 houses, and our average sales price at that point was 150,000 uh, on the market. The interesting thing is that 93% of our sales. Wait,
1: wait, wait, wait. Am I confused? The average sale price was a hundred and fifty thousand. Oh, I'm, I'm
3: sorry, I jumped ahead. Sorry, thank you for okay. Clarifying. All right. Well, but I can probably find that number. But here's what. Let me let me go ahead here a bit. Okay. The three hundred under. Ninety-three um, percent of our sales were in that in that category in '09. So almost everything that we did was three hundred and under, which is which is significant. Yeah. And in 2019. And if you've got questions, Steve, you jump in here. No, this is fascinating. <laughs> Actually,
2: I've been talking to a number of people, including you guys, about the predictions for 2020 yeah. for an upcoming Rochester Magazine story. And some people who've touched on what they think will happen in 2040, the real long-term predictions. Oh, that's, so an, that's a good one. It's been fascinating for me to dive into some of those uh, CMAR numbers as well.
3: So. Yeah. Because '09, um, you know, 93% of our market was in that uh, 300 and under. Um, so we that was that was where where we were doing business if we were doing business. Uh, just as last year, we had almost no sales under 100,000. These are single-family homes. We mm-hmm. had 14. In 09, we had 113. Wow. Homes sell. Now, a lot of those were probably foreclosures, mm-hmm. different market, different time, but it's been a tremendous shift in the last 10 years. Um, but the good thing about all that, and I didn't dive into all the individuals, is our market really did pick up in, you know, sometime in 2010 and was very strong in 2011 and has been strong ever since. We've seen just modest. Increases and changes uh, since then. So, yeah. And again, looking forward to 2020, I think everything that we're seeing and hearing is is barring any unforeseen global issues. You know, we're seeing pretty much the same thing for this community for sure, um, and and nationally probably.
0: I remember sitting in my living room in 2009, and I had just gotten an appraisal and just received it back. Mm-hmm. And in my old neighborhood, there was one house that sold for. $40,000. yeah, And there were three others in the neighborhood that were foreclosed upon. So I wondered, you know, how you feel like those things are going to last right. for so long. But once it recovered, it was pretty amazing. That house that sold for forty, you know, right now is probably a $170,000 house yeah. in that same neighborhood. It's been flipped. So yeah. it's interesting to see where things were then compared to
3: where they are now. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a really difficult time, but even during that time, the Rochester market and we and I talk about this a lot, the years seven, eight, and nine. Even at that point, the Rochester market was performing in the top ten across the country for communities our size. So uh, we're not immune, but we're pretty insulated from a lot of those things. I mean, mm-hmm. that's not a guarantee going forward, but um, it just goes to show that the the real estate market it it is a good investment here. Um,
1: and that was true even of the Twin Cities. We, did, we performed better than the Twin Cities did during that time frame. So talk a little bit about why you think that is.
3: Well, I think the, the basic reason is, is, one, we're a smaller market with more controls on it, but we don't ride the big uh, boom and bust cycles. When we look back in the early 2000s, the Twin Cities market was appreciating double digit, you know, 13, 15. One year they had almost a 20% appreciation in one year. And homeowners in in our community were going well. Yeah, we're 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 good at five and six percent a year. But what's wrong? You know, so if you if you go up dramatically, you have a lot bigger risk in 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 coming down when the market corrects. In addition to a lot of fraud and things that were going on in the bigger markets that we didn't really have here. Again, speaking to our economy, yeah, in our way that we do business here.
0: I'd say the economic driver of the Mayo Clinic is probably really helpful in the city of Rochester, yep. Rochester as well. Yeah has some stability that it provides to so probably a lot of markets within the within the yeah. boundary too. Yep.
1: Well and for people who don't live here, if they're listening, um Mayo Clinic is um, it's known for being a, a, a somewhat conservative institution. And so they they are slow to make changes because they're careful. And I think that that reflects on our community as a whole. I think Rochester as a whole, business-wise, is is a little bit more conservative than other parts of the country, mm-hmm. because we do have, you know, this major employer that is the nature of their industry. So um, that affects us, I believe, in Rochester, and it keeps us somewhat stable. I, you know, in the past, we've lived in markets that were um, boom and bust. Um, when Ron and I first got married, we lived out in Colorado, and we lived there for about fourteen years. And riding that boom and bust is is hard yeah. on people, especially um, when you're in different energies that are booming and busting. And if you're in sales, it's it's a little grueling. But um, you know, Rochester is much more stable than that, which is one of the reasons that we chose to stay here, because it was it was a, a very consistent level lifestyle, it's a great place to raise your family because of that.
3: Right. And one more, having worked that down market, I think probably the worst thing was our expectation, we just talked about this, of of the time to sell because this market has always performed in that 36 to 35, um, 45 days on market overall for all price ranges. Last year we were 41 days on market. But, during the downtime of the mortgage crisis, we were approaching a hundred and more uh, across the board to get a house sold, and yeah. we just, as a community, didn't have the patience for that that kind of turn. I mean, we had never in 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 recent history hadn't experienced that
1: well, and the other thing that hit us just after that was nine eleven and right? Or before that. No, it was before I mean, that. just before yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. And that was a time period where the, again, the days were very, yep. the days on market. I mean, we spent a number of evenings sitting around people's kitchen table just saying it will be okay, but we didn't really know. We yep. didn't know how we would pull out of that yep. time frame, yep. and the same was happening yep. then too. Yep. Do you remember what interest rates were at that time by any chance? I don't remember.
3: In 09? Mm-hmm. No
1: yeah I don't remember either what was happening with the interest rates at that time.
0: Well, I was looking to refinance. That's why I got the appraisal. and I remember it was somewhere in the range of about seven percent. I thought
2: we we bought our house right around then. I think we I think we had a six and a quarter or six and a half yeah. or something like that. so
3: which we were thinking was a great rate. We were I mean, at that point, that. yeah, anything yeah. under seven was a great rate. so yeah.
1: Yeah, when Ron and I bought our first house, it was like 14.5 or something. In the 80s, we, yeah, we, yeah. Right. I mean, you know, I <laughs> used a credit card, it was cheaper. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. <Yeah>. Anyway, <laughs> I'm <not> there, just... <laughs> it, there was a refi boom back then,
0: but now, and there's a bit of a refi boom happening now. Yeah. That interest rates are at three. So we were at a closing just last week and was talking with Sarah Batslav, mm-hmm. who we've had on here before, and she said that they are far busier than usual right now in December because of so many refinances that are
2: happening. Do you still run into people who have the mindset that they have to wait until spring to sell?
1: Yes. We do. But I mean, is there
2: any validity behind that, or is that just one of those things that started and everyone's kind of bought into?
1: I'll give my opinion, and then these guys can weigh in. In my mind, if you wait till spring you may you may have more buyer activity but you're also going to have a lot more competition sure and if you if you list now and i'm going to exclude this week because this you know these couple weeks do go a little quiet on us um but you have you have probably less activity as far as number of showings but there also is usually a lot less as far as things that you're competing against. So we really don't. We try and talk people through that because the only, the only other piece of that is that, you know, it's a little colder when you're loading the truck this time of year. Sure.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but it is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? There's not any statistical right reality behind holding off until march or april to sell your house versus now is there Mm -hmm.
3: i think that again is a difference between our community and the national the national market you know nationally people would look at the spring market and there's a lot of them that that are just they go to sleep in in the in the winter which is not typical of our market and then they'll wake up in the spring do business and go back to bed um so what we have told people for years here is is you gauge your move around what makes most sense for you Depending on the price point and location and and your ability, if you could wait for spring, let's just say you've got a small acreage just outside of town, something like that, it might make sense, but in general, you can sell a property uh, and get market price for it here 365 days a year. So you want to gauge your move around your time frame, and not something that you anticipate in the market in the marketplace.
1: I remember having a listing the first week of January, and it was so cold, <laughs> and the seller just said, "Lynn, would you sell this thing?" Because mm-hmm. I just am tired of cleaning my driveway, and we did. And I mean, so it really does not impact us as much, right. I think, as it does other markets. And
0: I would say that some of my most successful listings have been in late January and early February. Yes. There's almost an early adoption that happens with the spring market, too, so that there is there is the mindset. But we've had so many listings go on in that later portion of winter, getting into January and February, where it's busier than you would have ever expected. Especially, you know, those houses that are in that, you know, under 300 range mm-hmm. is that there are a lot of buyers out there waiting. They know that it's going to be 45 days before they're closing, so they're looking for a home in January and February once the hustle and the bustle of the holidays are over. Um, but I think right now too, I was going to ask you and really put you on the spot, but if you had the number of houses on the market today. Today would actually be a great time to be a buyer because there is still, even though I don't think it's necessarily a ton better once we get into March. But if you're a buyer, yes. there's not as much competition out there today. Right. Absolutely. So if you've got your ducks in a row, you've got the pre-approval and you know that mm-hmm. you're not going to move. You realize if you buy a, bought a house today, you're not closing until maybe the first week in February. Yep. So that's my thought on that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree.
0: If, if you do need the green grass and everything like that, then you know, you're looking at the spring. But if you're a, someone who's selling and looking to buy, I don't think it matters if it's December, April or August because the market is going to follow your time of the year because if by chance and I don't think there's a lot to it but if you're selling and your price is going to be a little bit higher maybe in March or April because you have a $160,000 house to sell where there's going to be a lot of demand you know right now the market to buy you might be able to buy maybe even a little bit under list mm-hmm. if you're updating yep. if you're moving into a house that's 300 or 350 from a house that's maybe 185 yep i think i think the market follows so it's balanced out for buying and selling. That if you're gonna do that combo, you're better off doing it when you're most most comfortable doing it, as opposed to a time of the year.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep.
3: Cool.
0: Yeah. So we're done talking about some real estate stuff.
1: Do you have any other numbers for us?
3: No, I think I'm I think I'm oh I've got lots of numbers, but I'm pretty cool. anxious to you're talk all done about the us. <laughs> I'm pretty anxious to talk about the Rochester Mag. Because um. in full disclosure, before you get started here, i I read almost nothing that's not on, doesn't come on my iPad. I mean, I just sure. I just don't. But I you will almost always and that's a big word. That's an a word. Always walk into our house and find the Rochester Mag on our table. It's it's there right now because I I love that publication. Yeah. yeah.
2: It's a phenomenal team. I mean, like I said, I've been there for almost 20 years. Right now we have just it's myself, we have a full-time sales and marketing person, Tessa, a full-time designer, Lisa, and then our associate editor, Jennifer, only works, you know, less than part-time, really, and does a phenomenal job. And we have one staff writer, Anne, who helps out some. But, you know, it's just a team that goes through the, the brick wall for the magazine every month. It's just a, a, you know, I do very little, honestly. I let everyone do their own thing, and everyone acts kind of as their own department head, and they're all there because they want to be, and I, I really do think it shows in the product. So it's been a, you know, it's been a fabulous run, and it's a really cool group right now. The culture of your your group seems to be that of what you're having fun. So, in yeah. fact, I have to be out of here by 4 because we're meeting at Wildwood for a Oh, no Santa. problem. Yeah. <laughs> <For a secret laughs> we'll Santa have to be out of here in 20 minutes. <laughs> so, just to be clear that I have to get out. When I said I had a meeting at 4, it's actually right. a it's drinking a meeting we're <laughs> giving each other gifts. So Can we go? Sure, yeah, you certainly can. Uh,
1: there's a rabbit out there in the snowbank yeah, if you right. don't have
2: your no, shot. <laughs> I actually excel at Secret Santa. I'm not very good at getting, getting gifts for my wife or family, but the Secret Santa <laughs> stuff, I put a ton of thought and effort into. Uh, I had Jennifer Kosky last year, and I think she was almost moved to tears by the thoughtfulness
3: of my gift. So it's your co-workers. So your family is one thing. Yeah. I don't know them. So I have a couple questions for you. Um, talk to me about print magazines in general uh, today, and how that compares to what you're seeing in Rochester with Rochester Mag.
2: So Rochester Magazine is a bit of an anomaly in the market because we're a free product. So we're distributed at about 150, 200 locations around town. We're in every Mayo Clinic waiting room, which is a a real coup for us. We also direct mail to about the top 3,000 business owners and homeowners in, in Rochester. So for us, honestly, when... Uh, The economy is a bit down. More people are picking the magazine up because it's free. So instead of going to a store to buy something, they're grabbing the magazine from one of the racks. So we've really done a nice job of kind of positioning ourselves where we are, like you said when it comes to Rochester, fairly insulated in a fairly insulated market. So that's been really good for us. Um, We move 15,000 magazines, oftentimes within the first 10 days of every month. So we have a real demand. The people who carry it at their stores love the magazine because people are specifically stopping in to somewhere like Tangerine to pick up Rochester Magazine. So that's a great, a great uh, coup for us as well. But um, you know, we've really tried to separate ourselves from a lot of the other uh, media outlets in the market, and there's some great ones. But we, and I think you guys understand this as well as anyone. We really try to concentrate on branding a product. And you guys have done a great job with, you know, the really nice photo, the simple message. You guys really do it well when it comes to your ad design and your message. And I think it gets out there. I mean, I know people that, mm-hmm. that, you know, know you guys because of Rochester Magazine. And that's you know, it's something we really strive for. So, you know, we get a chance to have a product that, like you mentioned, people sit down with and read. We're doing... 2,000 and 3,000 word stories that you don't see in a lot of other products in town. And it's what we love to do. And no knock on the other products. Every other place in town does a really nice job of something very specific. And I think our niche is really that, you know, that kind of Tony, longer form piece and phenomenal photography from the staff at the Post Bulletin and Olive Juice Studios as well and and great design and, you know, just, uh, again, just a really good team putting on a really good product.
0: Well, I can attest that, you know, as you mentioned, small market media, it comes with its downfall of of resources, so your resources can often be limited, but uh, what I've always appreciated about Rochester Magazine is that you've got a level of quality that seems to, in my opinion, it does excel kind of beyond what we would think of a standard in in a smaller market where there aren't as many resources available. How Especially, have you how have
2: you maintained that? You know, Especially. it's mostly arrogance because we just <laughs> we honestly just do what we think is cool and fun and then we hope other people will like it. We're never and this sounds like I said, it sounds a bit arrogant, but we're rarely trying to think of what people want and doing that. I think it was Steve Jobs who had a great quote that if if you try to build what people want, by the time you get it built they want something else anyway. Mm-hmm. So we do stories that – I've always said that sincerity really shows through. It does – it did with you when you were on TV. It does with Tracy McRae on the radio. All the people that are good at that are sincere. Tom Overly, they're sincere with what they do, and that's what we've tried to do with the magazine. So if we find something that, you know, if you ran it by a focus group, they'd say, ah, that's asinine. Why are you doing this? Hmm. We're probably going to do it anyway, and we find that people – can relate to that because we don't try to couch it. We try to do what we love and we think that shows.
0: You were going to say something, Lynn. I'm sorry I cut you no, off. I might I'm have sorry. cut her off. Actually. No, I interrupted. I just
1: meant I, I said especially for a free publication.
2: Right. Right. right yeah.
1: For free. You, you do it so well.
2: It's always fun when you get to do because we do get complaints. So when you do get someone complaining like crazy, <laughs> you're just sitting there and I'm always the of the ilk that it's much more more um, Simple and also probably more aggravating for the complainer to just say, "Well, thanks for reading. I really appreciate it." Instead of engaging, but in the back of your mind, you're thinking, "Okay, we just gave you a free 84-page product, and you're calling me to complain." <laughs>
0: I'll give
3: you a receipt.
1: <laughs> the two
3: things that I like about it: uh, one is it is a it is a quality publication. You know, you were just kind of talking about that process and and uh, and how that happens, and and uh, the other thing is it does it does really speak Rochester all the way through. I mean from the articles and the things you highlight and things you do it's very consistent and it does speak about our community which is is near and dear to to all of us. So um, you do a really good job at that.
2: Well, honestly, that's part of the beauty of it. So for me, there's oftentimes we're reaching out to people because we want to know what the best buffalo wings are in town. So we're asking yeah. the community. I moved out here in 2000 from Michigan. We'd seen this job advertised and and came out. They had just started Rochester Magazine in January of 2000. So my wife and I came out. We had a daughter. My wife was working a lot for the state of Michigan, and we were going to kind of scale back for a bit. And we thought we'd be here for a two-year stint and 20 years, and two more kids later, we're still here. So we've grown with the community and learned about the community from, from day one. So when we first got here, we made a point of eating at every local restaurant every Friday night we ate at a different local restaurant mm-hmm. to try to get a feel for the town and we did a lot of road tripping I had a lot of meetings um, beer soaked and otherwise with a number of, of people who really knew Rochester who really took to the magazine right away and so we had a lot of friends who really wanted to give back to the magazine and and it's been a really cool experience for us because Honestly, Rochester's gotten better every single year we've been here in 20 years. It's not an exaggeration, and it's probably something you can't say about too many other cities in the country, and we've gotten a chance to be part of that, so yep. it's it's not been difficult to find stories. Uh, Jennifer Kosky does a random Rochesterite every month. It's just someone she runs into by happenstance and asks to do an interview, and inevitably they say there's i got nothing for you there are no good stories here and inevitably there are phenomenal stories because everybody's got a good story right it's just a matter of dragging it out so um so we've been really lucky to be part of a city that's grown like this every year and is you know just thrown stories at us
1: you know it's interesting because if if someone is listening to this and they don't live here they're gonna think that you're you're just kind of like a plant because almost <laughs> every person who comes, and we feel this way, they go, you know, Rochester is just like a gem. And you can't even put a, put a finger on why. I mean, there's so many great things about it. Um, but everyone who comes, we did the same thing, came, thought we'd be here maybe five years, and then we were out of here. And you know, that was almost 30 years ago. There's something about it that it kind of gets in your blood, and you just – it's a great little place to be.
2: It has been the perfect place for us to raise a family. And there are just so many people that you run into every day that are doing amazing things, mm-hmm. especially in the clinic, right? So right. Um, I always tell the story, about my son got hit in the throat. He was, like, fourth grade, playing baseball, second base, um the field's over by RCTC, he gets hit in the, line, in the throat with a line drive, right? It dips under his glove, hits him in the throat. His coach is a general practitioner. The opposing team's coach is an emergency room nurse, and there's an ENT with a medical bag in his trunk in the crowd. So Henry is getting better <laughs> medical treatment on the, the field. field than he would be probably in most cities right, in, any other in America. So, it was just, <laughs> so there's a lot of that stuff, too, where you just realize – there are so many people here doing so many good... Look at you guys putting on a podcast. I mean, this is just above and beyond, and this is what everyone seems to do in this town. They don't just mm-hmm. do their thing and move on. Everybody's kind of striving to do something bigger and better, and it just really shows in the city. And I'm not a plant. I'm not one to drink the Kool-Aid. It's probably a bad example because those people died. But, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> I started sipping it about year four here, and then... You know, was drinking from the fire hose by about yeah. year six or eight. We've really loved the city.
1: The other thing that I find fascinating about the city is that, and I say this to people all the time because we both volunteer at the clinic. You know, is there are so many great minds here, so many great minds, and they collaborate. And at the clinic specifically, there it's not all about one person. Everybody's everybody is for the common good. But then when you meet them out at a baseball game or doing whatever, I had a friend and when I first introduced him to Ron, Ron said, so what do you do? And he goes, eh, I work at the clinic. And he's this PhD that's, you know, writing questions for boards and stuff like that. And he's just, eh, I work at the clinic. Some incredible people who who have a lot going on in their minds, but they're very, very community orientated as well. They kind of have also bought into the Rochester community. So anyway. And I wonder
0: how many, I mean, you have so many doctors, physicians, surgeons, people who work at the clinic who have written not only scientific publications, but written books themselves. I mean, you've got quite a mind trust within a city like this.
2: And it's been, that's been really nice for Rochester Magazine, honestly, because we don't uh, write to the lowest common denominator. We write in a way, again, that we would find you know, th- something that we'd want to read. And I think that's really resonated too because, you know, we're never talking down to people and it's a city that doesn't want to be talked down to and doesn't need to be. This is a mm-hmm. really well-read town, a town that really gets into magazines. And again, I'm always amazed because, yeah, I run into these people who, you know, want to talk about the magazine or ask people about the magazine and they're doing, you know, cutting-edge neurosurgery all around the world and they they care about Rochester Magazine. But it's just that kind of like you said, Lynn, it's, it's that kind of mindset where people don't put themselves above everything else. It really is a very community-focused city.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, too, comparing our schools to something like, let's say, uh, Wyzetta or Bloomington-Jefferson. Just for an example, last night, you know, we're going to the drumline battle, and you know most of the people, it seems like you know most of the people who were there. I mean, I was five people down from you and Lindy, and Brent and Lori were right in front of you, and then Kosky was over in the century section, and on top of all the people who you run across on a regular basis, too. It's not like you've got a class of 900. Um, you really get to know Everyone. You know, it's a close-knit family.
2: And boy, that the drumline battle, not to talk too long about that, but that is just one of those moving moments for me. I don't know if I'm getting old or what, but there was a couple pseudo-tear-jerking moments where yeah. you're thinking about these kids putting all this extra time in. My son, your son getting up at 6 a.m. to go to mm-hmm. drumline, or at least trying to get up at 6 a.m. to go to drumline. And... You know, to raise last night they raised twenty-five hundred dollars. These schools did in this drumline battle in the most selfless way possible, and it's just uh, you see the community come together behind those kinds of things. And Mayo was packed last night with people, yeah. many of whom did not have kids attending the event. Right, right. And you know, you you just see that and realize this is the kind of thing that can bring an entire you know in this case group of high schoolers together, and they're going to be on move on to be that that next group of uh, adults in Rochester.
0: And the spirit they have for their schools, too, is is amazing. (laughs) It was far greater than, uh, I guess, in my Gen X and graduated in the mid-1990s. It was nothing compared to what these kids are, are giving
2: up to. But it's part of what I think holds this community together are those types of things. And like you said as well, Lynn, I know so many doctors who are so busy, so many nurses who do so much stuff, and to a person, they're on some board or they're volunteering in some way, and usually behind the scenes, you don't realize it until you spend some time with them. But again, it's the thing that separated this place to me is the fact that everyone is doing something above and beyond.
1: I agree. I agree, and it is it is interesting we were at a baseball or a basketball game um I guess this was last year that we attended, and there was a i i say a little there was a, a retired couple <laughs> sitting in front of us, a, a man and a woman, and it was so fun because I was talking to them a little bit, you know, before the game started, and they said we've we have always gone to basketball games. And yeah, just it doesn't help. They didn't know anybody in the on the team. They were just there because mm-hmm. that's where the community gathered on Friday night was at a basketball game, you know, and and like you said, you. I go to those events, and I don't know what section to sit in because I know kids in every section. Right, yeah,
0: you've got <laughs> friends who are... Yeah, I was going to ask, too, I mean, were you and Kosky in the office together yesterday or today? Where you were arguing over who won the drumline battle?
2: I think it was clear that Mayo won, and our kids' team had absolutely dominated the event. But it's still a nice event for the other kids to be part of. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> nice of them all to show up. <laughs> it was. It's good to have the filler. The, no, actually, I think... I better not say this. I think Mayo... I Actually, all the teams did really well, and they went out of their way to have all kinds of extra tricks and things happening above and beyond the normal drumline oh, stuff, yeah. which I love. There's, They're holding the kids upside down in the century team, and they're playing the drums upside down. JM had the... Uh, Trombone kind of yeah the trombone section do they call it the fight or whatever yeah, it's, it's like super you look dangerous so like they're yeah. you know, they're turning sideways and nearly hitting the person next to them mm-hmm. and then obviously Mayo dominated the event but uh, you know,
3: <laughs> so I know what section we're, you were sitting we're, in we're <laughs> Mayo parents so to bring this back to reality. <laughs> You know, we, we talk a lot about how Rochester is a very large, small town. And I think that's what we're all saying because we, we love it here. But to be realistic, I mean, it's not perfect. I mean, there's no perfect place to live. But It gets cold. It, it does get <laughs> cold. You know, and, and if it didn't, it would be much more expensive, which is what we tell people. For the right. quality of life mm-hmm. that we have here Compared to the cost of living, it is really hard to beat it. it <laughs> That's really... your
2: selling point for the cold. It's cheaper to buy a
3: house. No, I leave the cold piece out. She put the cold piece in. I didn't put that in there. The price of a
0: gallon of milk is lower. <laughs> That's yeah. the
1: only thing that keeps people yeah. away as they go. Uh, when uh. when we were from Colorado, people would say, "Oh, it's so beautiful there," and then when you tell me you're from Minnesota, they go, "Oh, it's so cold <laughs> there." <laughs> So it does follow us. And we like to we like to brag about the cold a little bit. We think we're hearty. Minnesotans. Yeah, yeah we're, we yeah, think we're hearty yeah. up here. Yeah.
3: So um, the helicopter.
2: Man, so this is part of the beauty of what I get to do, right? A, I'm the editor of the magazine, and I'm far more likely to ask forgiveness and permission. So I just... I get a chance to assign myself stories, and I do them, right? So I've, <laughs> I took pro boxing lessons and went three rounds with a former pro, Dan O'Connor. I have um, did survival a survival school in Wisconsin, and I probably would have died if the PB photographer hadn't snuck a Twinkie in my pocket. <laughs> um, but I get a chance to do a lot of these. I took pro wrestling lessons in the cities, driven a World War II tank. Last month, I got to fly in Mayo 1, the emergency medical helicopter. Ah. They have four different helicopters. And so they actually set up a flight for us. Again, just a great relationship with Mayo that's gotten better every year. And I've worked on this story for probably eight or ten years to try to make it happen. And finally, they um, acquiesced, and we set up a flight as if it were an actual flight and went from the helipad at St. Mary's Hospital to the airport and it was seeing those guys and women in action um, is, again, one of those things that people outside of Rochester, outside of a community with this kind of hospital presence would not understand. So this is a you know eight $9 million hospital, uh, basically a hospital in flight. They can do blood transfusions. They can reset femurs in the air. This is a helicopter that will travel 130 miles an hour and Mm -hmm. feel like you're riding on a Cadillac through the clouds. It is a lifesaver, literally, for a very high number of people in the 150-mile radius of Rochester. This is an organization that, from Rochester alone, does about 1,000 patient transport flights a year, travels close to a quarter million miles every year, and you know, you start to delve into the stories and really understand how important this is. You know, it's it's a lot of, uh, there's not a typical flight. It's a lot of everything. You know, there's Nels Gunderson, who was a farmer who got his leg caught in a rototiller and lost his leg below the knee, and Mayo helicopter was uh, dispatched on what's called an, an auto launch. So if a certain call comes in a 911 in a 150-mile radius and meets certain criteria— fall from a certain height, uh, vehicle accident at certain speed, burns over X percent of the body. They automatically launch the helicopters, regardless of whether there's a call form or not. And when the first responders get to the scene, they can send mail one back and say, we don't need you. We're in, mm-hmm. we're in good shape here. But because of this auto launch process, you know they were able to land at this farm within minutes of the call of this guy losing his leg and were able to treat him they have whole blood which is very unusual on the medical helicopter and along along with the red blood cells and platelets and we're able to treat this single individual on the flight back he ended up you know home 5 days later after losing a leg below the knee there are just so many of those stories that we don't realize that you see every 5 or 6 times a day that mayo clinic takes off from that helipad mm-hmm. the busiest Uh, private helipad in minnesota there's another four or five helicopters landing there from outside bringing patients to the to the mayo clinic but you know to see these people in action on these nine million dollar vehicles is again just something that is above and beyond what you normally see
3: it is probably out of all the articles that i've read recent my favorite for two reasons um one i love helicopters i mean i just i love (laughs) those things but I was I read and hung on every word because it was it was you 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 did it well, but there was so much information in there when you stop to consider from the call to to in flight what they do and inspect and get in, get geared up, and it's eight minutes. Uh, that's crazy. They're
2: hoping to break ten in every flight. they average about eight, and that includes and there's some really cool aspects of this too that includes, like you said. Run. They're all doing a walk-around inspection. The flights are always minimally fueled because you want the least yeah. amount of fuel possible, weight possible on the vehicle. And then if they have to go somewhere farther, if they have to carry like an isolate because it's a situation with a preemie or they have to bring an extra uh, medical person on board, they'll have to add more fuel. But there were just some really cool aspects to it, one of which is they don't know what they're going to find until they are well on their way. Mm-hmm. So what originally happens is they get a call saying, there's a trauma in Austin, and that's it, And that's by design, because then they have to make a decision based on where the flight is, weather conditions, those types of things, as opposed to hearing a call that a kid just got hit by a bike, a five-year-old kid, which would clearly jade them in the safety of the flight. So that was really interesting to me. They don't know where they're going, they don't know where they're going, they don't know what they're gonna find until they're in the air, that's by design. The first two minutes of the flight after takeoff, none of the uh, crew members are talking to each other. The pilot is talking to dispatch, and that's when they get their first inkling of what they may be up against there. So that was very interesting. And then the site landings, the landings Mm -hmm. outside of the hospitals or or secured helipads, the danger and uh, collaboration there with the ground crew is unbelievable. So you're trying to set up a spot in a land in a landing spot on a highway, maybe, or in a field, mm-hmm. and you know, with all of the problems that come with landing a helicopter, say at night, with wires and things that can get sucked up into the rotors, whatever else. I mean, these guys are again, guys and women, are putting themselves out there every time they take off on a on a flight and, and it we posted that story it got a phenomenal number of shares and whatever else because of the people who had had interactions with those crews. So if you go to the Facebook page for the Post Bulletin or Rochester Magazine where the where the story was posted or Mayo Clinic's Facebook page, it was really cool to me because so many of the responses are, I was on there and they saved my life. I mean, all I saw was, you know, the last thing I remember was this. And I remember waking up in the helicopter and seeing someone... You know, taking care of me, and I was home with my kids four days later. Those stories are are just phenomenal, and the amount of response we got from people who had actually been treated was was really cool.
3: It was a great article. So I
2: felt like that writing it. Honestly, it yeah. was one of those where I everything everyone told me I wanted to get in the story because everything was fascinating. Yeah. Mayo has its own blood bank, and one of the reasons that Mayo One, and there are four Mayo One helicopters, is able to carry whole blood is because of the donations from people at the clinic. So think about that, I mean, that that team at the clinic who donates blood, talks people into donating blood, they make a difference in what is actually being given. And it's about a one-to-one, right? So a unit of blood you're giving someone is about what you give when you're donating blood. So, you know, three units of blood in a Mayo One helicopter in a flight that may take 15 minutes, that could take an hour, uh, otherwise makes all the difference in the world and the rates of survival for helicopter flights versus, you know, similar ambulance rides are phenomenal. Mm
3: -hmm. What's your favorite article ever?
2: You know, that's actually, I was going to say it's tough. It's really not. There was one guy, Fred Hargesheimer, who I interviewed in 2008 so i waste a lot of time at work doing searches for things like born in rochester or died in rochester minnesota or just rochester minnesota and i had come across the story of a world war ii pilot who had been shot down in uh new guinea Papua new guinea and so i thought well i'd never heard that story before i did some searches and didn't find much about fred hargesheimer so i Started doing some searches, and I got a hold of a Fred Hargesheimer in California, and sure enough, it was Fred, who was part of the Hargesheimer family. They were a big uh, pharmacy family in Rochester, lived on Pill Hill in the days when Pill Hill was a derogatory term for the pharmacists and doctors who mixed up their own pills and, and pestle and mortared different products together to create whatever they thought they needed to create. So I got a hold of Fred and and said, hey, I'd love to do a story. And he says, sure, you know, fly on out and I'll talk to you as much as I want. And he was doing that for a very specific reason that he was raising money at that time for a hospital, a library, a school he was building in New Guinea. So I fly out to California and he says, my little sister will meet you at the airport and a 90-year-old woman in a VW Bug meets me. (laughs) (laughs) And so we go to Fred's house and he was... I think 92 at that time, and he meets me at the door with a six-pack of Heineken. And I said, I you know, I'm, I can't. I'm driving. I go to my hotel, and he says, there's no way you're leaving this house for the next few days. So I forgo my hotel and stayed at Fred's house <laughs> for three or four days, and just got the chance to talk to a guy who, again, was doing something above and beyond probably anyone else that I've interviewed. So Fred was a soldiers field lifeguard back in the day, a Rochester kid, um, got the bug for flying when he took an airplane ride with a pilot out at the Olmsted County Fairgrounds and then spent all his time working at his dad's pharmacy to earn money for flight lessons, right? So this was in the 1930s, late, yeah, mid-30s. Fred was born, I think, in 1916. So he had finally enlisted in the service at the age of 24 25 or so during World War II sort of about 1940 that's right and uh, was put in a plane cuz he had obviously was a pilot and passed his pilot uh, certification for the air force for the army and was doing reconnaissance missions so was flying over um he was stationed in New Guinea and flying over the islands there that the U.S. was seeking out to, to uh, actually create the route for for MacArthur and his return to, you know, I shall return speech. So Fred in his 49th mission, and his 50th mission, he was going to get R&R, right? He was going to get to go to Australia and uh, have clean clothes and get showers and breakfast and stay at a beautiful resort for, you know, compared to where he was living. And he heard the staccato of machine gun fire behind him. He's in a plane that's not designed for bailouts, and immediately he knows he's in real trouble. One of the engines has been shot out. He's bleeding from his head. He's losing altitude. It's just him and this plane. It's a plane with just uh, cameras, no guns. And he knows the Japanese pilots behind him ready to bring him down. So Fred has to bail out of a plane that's not designed for bailouts. And to do this, he has to put the plane in a nosedive at about 600 miles an hour, and then jump out. And he'd (laughs) been watching videos before this, not videos, but film of bailouts. And they tested this plane for bailouts with sacks of flour, throwing them out the cockpit. And about one out of every three sacks of flour hit the tail. So Fred was thinking, boy, just hope I'm not that third sack of flour. (laughs) (laughs) So he stands up and tries to free the canopy, and the canopy gets stuck. So he can't get out of the plane in this full-on nosedive. Finally stands up with all his might, knocks the canopy off, and somehow he misses that tail. His parachute opens, which, you know, wasn't a guarantee back in those days for sure, and he's floating in the air. And now the Japanese pilot turns back around and is bearing down on Fred. And Fred thinks, okay, now this is it, right? I got out of the plane. This pilot's going to shoot me down. I'm just hanging here and have no chance to make it. For whatever reason, the pilot spins away, doesn't shoot Fred. And just to jump ahead here, years later, Fred was able to get a hold of this pilot, the Japanese pilot who didn't shoot him down, and talk to him on the phone through the interpreter. And the pilot said, you know what? I couldn't shoot you down because I could see your face when I was coming back towards you. You weren't just another enemy. You were a guy, a pilot, mm. just like me, and so I didn't shoot. So the pilot peels off, right? So that's miracle number what? What do we have to, four? Yeah. So Fred lands in the trees, and for parachuting pilots, the story goes, the last 100 feet is what kills you. You get caught in the trees, you break a leg, you're not going to survive in the jungle. And somehow Fred lands on the side of a mountain in some cover of some trees, and now he's alone on an island, and takes inventory. He's got a his parachute. It's uh, sewn into it as a survival kit with um, some chocolate as gifts for the natives. A booklet on plants you can eat in the jungle. That sort of thing, and he is alone, he really doesn't know where he is and he just starts walking. So he walks for 10 straight days. It's there are two seasons in New Guinea. It rains like crazy for 9 months and then come the monsoons, right? So everything is covered in water. He can't, you know, get a break. It's a place with headhunters, Japanese soldiers he knows are looking for him, death adders. It's a, you know, it's a pretty bad place to be for a guy without anything, but a handful of supplies that were sewn into a parachute for him. So after about 10 days, he comes across a hut, and he said it looked like the Hilton to him. So he finds a hut in in the jungle, and he has 10 matches. He collects some dry wood and straw and whatever else, and he lights the first nine matches, and they all go out. And so for the 10th match, he literally holds his breath, and gets the fire started. And he says, that just changed everything for me. The Hmm. difference between having a fire and not having a fire made all the difference. So he spent the next 30 days in this hut eating snails, he found having nightmares that he was filled with snails, getting up in the middle of the night to restoke this fire because he didn't have another way to keep it going. And he said he dreamt then not of... He dreamt of the university where he'd gone to U of M for a short time. He didn't dream of the girls or, you know, a nice house or a warm bed. He just dreamt of white castles. So he always (laughs) all he could think about was getting a white castle hamburger. (laughs) So on day 30, he heard voices, something he hadn't heard in a month. And it was a group of tribesmen coming down the river in a dugout canoe. And at that point, Fred didn't care if they were friendly or not. He just... Could not survive like this. He was down to skin and bones. He was uh, almost naked. His clothing had basically fallen apart in this period of time. And so he met um, the tribal leader who was actually on that canoe. His name was Luai Luau. And he gave him a note, and it was from a uh, Australian coast watcher who said, These are friendly tribes people. You can trust them. So Fred was taken back to the village of Nantabu in Papua New Guinea and the tribespeople hid Fred for the next nine months. So even when Japanese soldiers would come in offering bribes for people that told on Fred, offering uh, dreadful torture for people that lied about Fred, the villagers never gave him up in that whole time. He fished with them at night. They had a conch shell that they would blow when the Japanese soldiers were coming into town, and he would run into the woods, and the kids would follow him with branches and hide his tracks. When he got malaria, they nursed him back to health. He became good friends with these people. And then in month nine, and if you read the PB stories, it's phenomenal because, you know, local lifeguard missing, you know, six months, still no word, and his parents were mortified and hadn't heard from Fred, obviously. At the end of month nine, he got a message from a Australian coast watcher who had snuck into the village and given Fred a message saying, there's going to be a submarine meeting you at this time in this spot, and you have to leave now. So Fred started walking four days through the jungle, gets to the spot in time, a raft meets him and takes him to the, to the submarine, and he's back home a couple of weeks later, right? Phenomenal story could have ended there and and it would have for a lot of people. Fred gets married, he meets a, a stewardess named Dorothy, that um, airline stewardess. He said he walked by her, her booth a hundred times before he finally got the nerve to say hi. They end up getting married, have some kids. He missed his honeymoon because of a relapse in the malaria. And it went back to normal life, and about 1959 he realized that these war stories weren't ending right. He wanted to go back and give something back to his village that had given so much to him in that nine-month period. So Fred's wife, and Fred didn't want to do it. This was 1959. You're looking at Qantas Airlines to maybe a trawler and a mm-hmm. couple of pond jumpers. It's a lot of money, and it just wasn't like it is today. So Fred's wife came back one day with a Qantas Airlines map and insisted that Fred take the family vacation money to go back to, to New Guinea. So he does. He goes back. He gets word first that he's going back to the village. No idea if these people are going to know him, right? It's 16 years later. When he gets to the village after, again, a Qantas flight, some pond jumpers, a trawler, the villagers are waiting on the shoreline in their dress whites, and they have been for three or four days because they thought he was coming earlier and he, it was a little bit later than he expected. The village chief who had saved Fred 16 years earlier is the one that greets him on the shore. <gasps> they start singing the only English song they know. It's God Save the Queen. And he said the reception line didn't seem like it was ending, right? He's kissing babies. Then he realized it was an ending because the villagers had never been in a reception line before, so they kept getting back in the back of <laughs> the line. So Fred is absolutely moved. They um, not only remember him, but take him in as one of, his own, of their own. And Fred Hargesheimer spends the next fifty nine 49 years of his life going back to that village, including a couple two-year mm-hmm. stints. He goes on to tell the truth with Jack Parr to raise money. He tells the story to everyone who listen. He's in the Saturday Evening Post, uh, uh, different game shows, uh, anything he can to try to raise money to build a school now for this village who had done so much for him. He tells a woman on the plane next to him, and a week later he gets a $1,000 check. She was a Dayton heiress. He's getting $3 checks from sewing groups in Oklahoma when he's telling the story. So in 1964, Fred goes back and he and his sons and wife uh, build a school in Antabu in an area where there's not been any educational opportunities for kids in a 30 mile radius probably for the all of time. And that's what Fred does for the next 49 years of his life is raise money for the school He ends up building a full-fledged school, a hospital, a library. And in 2007, went back. They'd actually found parts of his plane from where it had been, uh, where it crashed on the island. And he was carried through the village on this ceremonial canoe. And there's these beautiful photos of Fred surrounded by, you know, hundreds of villagers. And it's just a story of a guy who gave so much back. So I'm there for four days, right, and he's telling the story. Very self-deprecating. He's really telling the story because he wants to raise more money. He wants to make one more trip before he thinks he's going to die. He's 92 Mm. years old. So Fred was really, like I said, self-deprecating during the interview. I could never get him to say he was a hero. he would say, "Ah, the people who saved me were the heroes, you know, despite his silver star and purple heart and whatever else. But then at one point I put... A video in. He's showing me a video that some Japanese film crew had had taken of crazy American stories or something and he wants to show me this this video. He puts the wrong DVD in and it's a woman, um, Garua Penny is her name, and she's talking to Fred. It's a video they'd made for Fred for villagers to show you know how much they appreciated everything he'd done. And he starts crying First time he'd really shown much emotion during the whole thing, because he you know didn't see himself as a player. He's very dispassionate towards it. And he starts crying, not because of what she's saying, but because of how she's saying it. So this is a woman who would have had no opportunity for an education, but because of Fred's school, she is now a professor at the University of Sydney in Australia. Uh So Hmm. you know, he's saying, Look at you know, look at this. Woman, yeah. who how far she's come from this tiny village, and and she would have, you know, she had nothing, and it was just a guy who left me with the message that you know the greatest thing that ever happened to me was getting my plane shot down. It just gave him a new purpose in life, and for the guy to have what could have been a great World War II story and it ended there, to dedicate the rest of his life, including a couple two or three year stints, to saving up all the money they had, then going to this village and you know doing the backbreaking work of building a hospital and library and and school there was uh, you know one of the most moving stories I've ever heard and and Fred was always a great friend of the magazine so after we talked every two weeks like clockwork I'd get a long sprawling handwritten note from Fred mm-hmm. about you know what are you working on for the next one and here's <laughs> what I saw from the last one and what I really liked so just we had a really uh, you know, Good relationship. I talked to him on a regular basis after that and Fred died in twenty ten, I think it was. But uh again, I've interviewed a lot of people. He was one of the most moving interviews I've been a part of, and I still get, you know, emotional talking about the guy now you well, that you probably horrifyingly that ex- hearing the voice here. But yeah.
3: having that experience and being in his house for four days would be life changing. Absolutely.
2: And that's the beauty of what we get to do, right? I have the luxury of being able to spend two days with someone, yeah. to be able to spend uh, the time at the mail One helicopter and to spend a day writing it and doing all the research and fact-checking. But, you know, we love the people stories, and everyone's got a great story. But, you know, like I said, Fred Hargesheimers is one of my favorites of all time just because of the devotion the guy had to give back and to spend literally the last 50 years of his life Sure. Uh, every vacation was to there to do work for, you know, whether it was going to be a week or two weeks or whether they had the luxury of spending a year or two there. That's what he and his wife and sons devoted their lives to. Hmm.
1: So you're a fairly young man. But That's have not you, true. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> but have you ever thought about someday writing a book about all of the people that you've talked to?
2: You know, it's a great idea, and actually... There's been some of that kind of in the works. I'm actually working on a book of columns right now, which is a lot of work. And, um, yeah, there's probably opportunities for a number of those things. And uh, I had actually looked at doing a book on Fred. There was already one written about him that was really well done as well. Um, But, yeah, you know, I've had a chance to meet and spend time with so many really cool people. And it's what... You know, I love about my job is to get a chance to spend four days living in a guy's, you know, house in, in California and listen to him tell war stories, and and it's just a whole other world. Wow. Yeah, what an honor to be able to tell his story. Yeah. yeah. And I tell it every chance I get because, again, this is a guy that, it, he was a hero because of what he decided to do. He had no skills above and beyond anyone else. He just decided he wanted to give back, and he was going to focus on giving back, and that's what he did and spent his entire life doing that.
3: It certainly puts our day-to-day
2: life in perspective. <laughs> it certainly did for me. Yes. Yeah.
0: Well, Steve, thanks for coming on today. Appreciate you visiting us and telling stories and a little bit of your history at the Rochester Magazine, and come back sometime. Hey,
2: thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. You guys do a great job. Thank you. Appreciate that. Any parting
3: thoughts before no, we head other out? One, other than do, yeah, thank you for being yeah. here. It, it, it's it's been you. a lot of fun to get to, to hear some of this and uh, get your insights. Thank you. And thank you. i look forward
1: oh. to that book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you're on the hook now. It's a good
0: thing that you're going to be in Rochester for a really long time, so you'll have a good opportunity. Thanks, everybody. Have a Merry Christmas.